Hi, everybody. Uh, this is Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them, uh, a philosophy and comedy podcast. Um, I'm Eric Kaplan. I'm a philosopher and I'm a Hollywood writer. Uh, and uh, Taylor Carmen, who are you? I'm Taylor Carmen, and I teach philosophy at uh, Columbia University Barnard College here in New York City, and I work on European philosophy. Uh, and we're really fortunate today. We have a special guest, and the special guest is Julia Moskin. And Julia Moskin is a Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times food reporter. And she's named after Julia Child, and she's been at the New York Times for 20 years. Um, and she has been thinking about food uh, in a rigorous way uh, for her entire life. So thanks so much for being on the show, Julia. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So I think the question is, um, is food art? And what prompted it was, I guess I feel a little guilty about how much I like to eat ice cream. Um, and I, and I think it's probably bad for me. Um, but I really like it. And if it really came down to it, if I had a choice between like reading, you know, a play by Aeschylus or having a pint of ice cream, I, I probably would prefer to eat the pint of ice cream, but I've always sort of felt that this was wrong, that this was a sign of moral, uh, uh, vapidity in me. Um, and then I went to a, um, an ice cream store. Um, I was actually getting a bicycle in the West Valley and I had some time to kill because they were putting on lights. And I went to an ice cream store and there was a big ad in front of the store that said the vanilla ice cream at this store is so good it doesn't even need sprinkles. The New York Times. And, and I was just like, huh, what, maybe I've been wrong this whole time. Maybe there is a way in which ice cream is is a serious thing to consume and think about and enjoy and and i decided to ask you i decided to ask you to come on the podcast to help me figure it out because i'm, I'm genuinely uh torn on this issue <laughs> well i think there are two parts of that question one is you know in the moment are you going to enjoy the ice cream or the escalus more yes and and then, you know, in terms of the great arc of human history, would it be a greater loss if there were no Aeschylus or a greater loss if there was no ice cream? Right. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I want to make sure we're comparing apples to apples, right? Because, um, I don't know. You tell me, what's the Aeschylus of fine food? What is, what's the greatest <laughs> achievement of, of the art of cookery, as Plato calls it? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that is hard to say because it's probably a meal and it mm, is, you know, uh -huh. by nature evanescent and, right. and gone. Um, yeah. You know, one of the reasons that I realized that I had to be a food writer, apart from having, you know, it predetermined by being named after Julia Child, mm -hmm. was, you know, some very emotional reactions that I have had to food. And of course, you know, eating is very tied up with you know, memory and sensory memory and so on. But I have been I have been moved occasionally by a dish. Like I remember um, at uh, this place, John George in New York. And just to preface this by saying, obviously, having grown up in New York I, 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 with parents who were very interested in food and able to enjoy it and even indulge in it, I am speaking from a place of uh, great privilege in terms of having had these kinds of experiences and also having, you know, sort of had this profession where I can think about them. Mm. Now, 
the dish that I remember getting slightly weepy over was at a place called Jean Georges, and Jean Georges, of course, is Vange uh, Gerichten's very famous chef, and he put together famously a dish of a cauliflower, raisins, and capers in a way that was so new to me. It was just like this fresh, new, like, I have never experienced this before. This it was like a rush. Um, and I had never thought about putting those things together. And I remember kind of tears coming to my eyes and feeling like, thank you, but like feeling gratitude to that creator. So in a way, I would say that that is the quality of an art. Uh -huh. But the complication of food is, of course, that it is also a craft. Um, I think of it as a lot like fashion in that you can be a person who wears sweatsuits your whole life and have a rich full life and that's fine. And you could also just eat, you know, Soylent Green or pizza and salad or whatever it was, you know, that, that, that moved you your whole life. But partaking of the pleasure of it and the interest of it is just to me part of a good, I don't know, what I, I, I call civilization, I guess. Can you draw a distinction there between the meal as the particular evanescent event and the recipe? Like, could you recreate the cauliflower um, raisins and capers? Is that what it was? Mm -hmm. Could you have that same thing on another occasion or was the occasion unique somehow? Like it was, um, maybe it depends on the particular ingredients. The, they're really good there, but somewhere else it wouldn't be as good. We all know that feeling, right? When you have the same kind of meal, but it's good in one place and not good in another. It would be more like an artwork if you could have the same one. Like I was thinking before when Eric was talking, you can sort of, as it were, eat your Aeschylus and have it too still, right? It never gets eaten up. It never right, gets used right. up. <laughs> Whereas food does. But I don't think that's a great distinction because I think you could have an improvisatory jazz performance that will disappear could. forever. And that's yet it, I wouldn't say that was an art just because it goes away. No, no, but it's less like a work. Um, yeah, but, but I don't so care. You're right, I, agree. I, I guess I'm not interested in the question myself, is cooking a work of art? Because I, I don't find the distinction between like a recorded musical performance and an improvisatory musical performance philosophically interesting. Yeah, but a play is a work. So your example of the Aeschylus was a work. So, but um, That's true, but you could, a, you could have a, uh, an, an improvised, uh, yeah. an improv, a night of improv. That's right, sure. Anyway, my question was for Julia. What do you think about that? I mean, is the art evanescent and um, there's another word for that. It always slips my mind. What's the other word? Ephemeral? Ephemeral, yes. Yeah, right. the, the mayfly belongs to the genus Ephemeridae, which is Aha. great. Yeah, it's, oh, okay. it's, it's, it's an ephemeral insect. Right. So is the art of cooking, is, it, is the ephemerality kind of essential to it, do you think, is my question, I guess. Oh, that's... Or, or could there well, be like a recipe that goes down in history as um, like, I hope you, we like don't feel court. like we're grilling you. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, would be no, ironic. No, grilling, right? you. Oh, <laughs> grilling you, yeah, so to speak. No, we're frying you. Yeah. We're baking you. No, we're, I, I, we're asking a lot of questions. I'm asking a lot of questions because I'm curious and I, I really uh, want to hear what you have to no, say. No, no, these are excellent questions. These are, you know, muscles that I haven't used uh, um, in, in a while. So, so bear with me. I'm just thinking out loud, too. I just don't know. Um, so 
an interesting thing about the evanescence or the uh, of of a meal relates to criticism, which I feel like it, that also relates to the question of whether food is an art, yeah. and, and we can get back to that because also there is the now a very uh, performative aspect of food um, mm-hmm. that I think actually is is nudging along the argument, which chefs, of course, are very much in favor of that it is an art, but. The fleetingness of it, it comes into play when we're talking about criticism, because, of course, with a movie or a book, you know, there is a body of work. There is a, a thing that is being critiqued that is concrete and all the critics see the same movie uh-huh, uh-huh, right? and all the critics true. read the same books. Right. But restaurant critics don't always have the same meal. And so that is one of the many complicating things about restaurant criticism, which also teeters between um, the, you know, the art and craft question in the part, a restaurant. What is a restaurant review for? Mm-hmm. Is it simply to tell you whether you should eat there or not, um, which you know, is what we call service journalism? Mm-hmm. Or is it part of just this, you know, the ongoing conversation about food? And like a, recording an accomplishment of some kind so that somebody gets credit for maybe artistic achievement absolutely and intellectual property i ah, mean recipes can't be copyrighted famously. Oh, interesting i didn't so, really realize um, that so something that can happen to me in the criticism of art is like i could read like um some heavy duty german philosopher talking about um oedipus and they'll say you know if you really think about oedipus Aren't we all in the position of Oedipus where, like, when we try to know things, our knowledge will destroy us? And I'll be like, wow, that play has so much depth in it. Thank you, critic, for having revealed that to me. Um, I liked it, but now I really like it. Can that happen in food criticism? Like, can, can what are you, I mean, I mean, I'm sure the answer is yes, because that's what you do. But, like, if you're writing something about the, the cauliflower with raisins, what is your job as critic? And, and I'm just going to assume the job is not to say your money would be well spent eating this. Like that, or, that, that, that's like really yummy. something you have a higher <laughs> calling than service criticism, than service journalism. So what mm-hmm. are you doing? If right. you're trying to write the review of the, the cauliflower, what do you do? How do you approach it? Well, let's use a different example. Okay. Um, because one of the touchstone sort of culinary what, dishes, let's just say new dishes yeah. of the last 20 years is a very famous beef taco, but it's a Korean beef taco. Okay. So it's bulgogi beef um, with kimchi, but also in a tortilla with crema, which is the traditional Mexican creamy garnish. The, a chef, in this case, Roy Choi, um, you know, grew up in a largely Latino neighborhood in Southern California, but his mother made kimchi and sold it out of the trunk of her car to other Koreans. And when he created that dish, you know, you could go there and review it and just say whether it's good or not. But I think that the role of the critic is to explain it to the person who, for one thing, is almost certainly never going to taste that dish because restaurant reviews you know, the number of people who will actually go to that restaurant is vanishingly small compared to the number of people who could conceivably Mm -hmm. read the review. Mm -hmm. In many cases, I feel like what we are doing is actually sometimes even explaining it to the person who created it. In this case, Mm -hmm. Roy Choi is a very thoughtful and articulate chef, but having worked as a ghostwriter for for chefs on their cookbooks, I can tell you that quite often their um, ability to talk about why they created a certain dish and what went into it and what are the ethnic, socioeconomic, 
culinary, what are, what are all those forces that come to bear on a new dish that to articulate it, I feel like is in some way sort of the best part of uh -huh. what I get to do. Uh -huh. And what is there to articulate beyond um, like sociology? Because I sort of feel like I can love Oedipus and not know really much of anything about 5th century Athens. And mm -hmm. and really, who cares about 5th century Athens? It's Those guys are all dead. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> their, their attempt to, to have a trade empire and beat the Spartans, that's done. They have no power. No one cares about that either. And yet... The artwork in Kafka's phrase, it, it, it's an axe that breaks open the frozen lake of the soul. Like it helps us understand ourselves better and sometimes even makes us feel like we ought to be better. Um, can the taco do that? <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be a really good taco. I mean, I, and again, I, it might be an it might be an absurdly high bar. And I again, I, I yeah, we also have to bring on the stage bad writing. <laughs> you know, like we can't compare one of the best plays anyone ever wrote with with some french fries that's not fair to the french fries so because there's also lots of like writing that's you know just not it's it's not a heavy hitter in the writing department there's some ideas in the food too though like the combination you were talking about the one that brought tears to your eyes it's because you said this was just an unlikely combination and maybe it was there was meaning there more than just sensuous pleasure in eating it right there was is it like... a combination of comfort and challenge that maybe it's bringing together our need to be comforted and our need to be challenged? Well, that's, of course, a huge question in food. And, you know, and that is where we come up against the fact that food is also a product that people pay for. Right. And, you know, the role of the audience, of course, can be enormous in that most people, mm. I, you know, uh, most people understand or I don't know, many consumers of art, I would say, understand that um, they want to be challenged. But I don't know that that many consumers of food know that they want to be challenged. You know, I feel like, mm -hmm. you know, what we have now in this, uh, in the very auteur chef area, you know, which is when you have these 26 course tasting menus, it's kind of the yeah. equivalent of like a, like a Robert Wilson performance piece where, uh -huh. <laughs> you know, it is not comfortable. It is not the most right. fun you know, evenings entertainment that you can have, but is thought provoking, it is different, it is intriguing, and it is above all challenging. It is interesting to me that there is enough of an audience to sustain as many restaurants as there are for this chef auteur experience. But you know, that by its nature, that kind of food has to constantly change and evolve. And that's uh -huh. where we get, you know, from Nouvelle Cuisine in the late 20th century, which broke everything wide open to molecular gastronomy in the early 2000s, you know, which is was the bringing to bear of science, although, of course, all cooking is science, but um, essentially what are additives and structural making structural changes to foods famously, um, there's a chef in Spain, I'm just going to explain that. I assume most normal people don't know about yeah, this. Yeah, please. So I'm just going to explain. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, right, some abnormal people don't know about it either. Yeah. In my world, all you have to say is the oblique olive, and everyone goes, oh, yes, of course, the oblique olive. But, you know. The, the oblique olive? <laughs> no, the elbouille olive. Oh, I don't know what that is. Yeah. Okay. So molecular gastronomy is really where food moved away from, you know, the French canon that had really been dominant in the Western world in Western restaurants for 200 years. And all of it was sort of encoded in the 18th and 19th century. 
molecular gastronomy brought what were then a lot of really new products leading to new ideas. So there was the addition of various agar agars. There were things to make things firmer, things to make things softer, things to make food into kind of a non-Newtonian mm. fluid mm -hmm. and changing the textures. And all of that was about challenging. So there is this very famous olive that was created by a chef called Ferran Adria at a place in Spain called El Bulli. Um, and he and his brother were really, uh -huh. have been the leaders of this moment, this movement. And it is, uh, it looks just like a green olive. And when you pop it in your mouth, it is actually a thin skin of like a thin sausage casing and it bursts open in your mouth and hmm. a very concentrated flavor of olive brine bursts into your mouth and then it just all melts away so there's nothing you're not chewing on it like an olive obviously it has no huh. pits but it is in some way <laughs> this extraordinary expression of olive uh-huh it's like a surprise party in your mouth <laughs> yeah okay that's, interesting that's very bad food writing i'm sorry taylor we can't say that <laughs> <laughs> i guess yeah the, the editors would say no we're not saying that okay <laughs> sorry i'm just kidding i see and is it but is it literally biologically an olive ah is it an olive i mean uh is it yeah i mean what is it that we're or is it a little firecracker? Or you know, it's like a starburst. It's made of olive. It is made of olive. That's why I guess yeah, what I was asking. Yeah. I see. So it's just got a different structure, texture. It's been manipulated somehow so that it does something different when you eat it. Exactly. And so I see. that whole movement was kind of brought beyond its logical conclusion with these very elaborate desserts. And I mean, you know, dessert has always been an expression of architecture as much as it is a flavor. And sugar work is a very uh. particular, specific, interesting way of not only flavoring but kind of creating and it's very visual so food kind of went in that direction for a while and then famously a chef called Rene Redzepi who was Danish went and worked at El Bulli and went back to the Nordic countries back to he went back to Copenhagen and said we are going to do a completely different thing and what we are going to do is go back to the land and while his food is highly manipulated, it is also very much based in the natural world. So that is a place where you find food served on beds of hay or straw or leather. Is that where they season it with ants? Um, there are some ants. I mean, ants are traditionally eaten in many cultures. They're a good source of protein. But some friends of mine went to a very fancy Noma. They went to Noma in Copenhagen and they ate ants. Is that the same movement you're talking about? <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. Huh. Um, and he famously made kind of foraging a, a, a thing. I mean, although Alice Waters was doing that at Chez Panisse, of course, like right. he actually was going out and getting wild plants and um, coming back and treating them, you know, in new ways and bringing all of these the real innovation that he did was this strict, just sort of an interesting intellectual exercise when you try to apply it in real life, this strict rule that nothing served at the restaurant could be grown more than, I believe it was 100 kilometers at first, maybe it had to be expanded ultimately within did the Did they employ greenhouses? He did ultimately employ greenhouses, oh, yeah. but you know you have to realize that means no lemons. That means not serving coffee. That means no chocolate. Ah. That well, if you had a greenhouse with a lemon tree, <laughs> yeah, they had used ants instead of lemons oh, because yeah. ants are sour. So, but but you could. I'm I, I don't know. I'm just geeking out on the rules a little bit. Like you could have a greenhouse with a lemon tree in it if oh, you sure. wanted. I'm sure they do now. 
you could have a greenhouse with some coffee stored in it. <laughs> but you know what? Here's a different idea, which is let's take a break. Great idea. We're going to take a little break and be right back and talk about food some more. Right. But if you're at home, you should do something equivalent to a palate cleanser. So like uh, go for a jog and come back. Okay. <laughs> Okay, and we're back with Julia Moskin. And I was going to say about food and art, this thought occurs to me. It sounds like there's plenty of room in cuisine and cooking and so on to be doing what art does, which is express something like an idea or to have meaning. So one thing we might be wondering about whether how much food can be art is whether it can convey something meaningful. And it sounds like there's lots of ways it can do that, either just by new combinations of foods, which, um, you know, you didn't expect or that rem or that teach you something like, oh, I didn't know this could go with that or something like that. It seems like there's plenty of overlap with other kinds of arts in that it isn't just giving you a purely sensory experience, which is either pleasant or not pleasant. So that all the critic is doing is saying, this is yummy and this isn't, um, <laughs> to put it really crudely. So that's that seems like it's a similarity. And I just, I know nothing about this, so I'm interested in hearing more about this sort of the way in which somebody manages to convey something meaningful with some food that you can, as you said, articulate. You said it a while ago that what you're doing as a critic maybe is either explaining or articulating something that's going on with this food rather than just saying this works or that doesn't because this is delicious or even just descriptive language like this is delicious in this particular way by being sweet or sour or something like that there's there's idea content absolutely in it, there? I mean, one of the big ideas especially in um what has been called new american food which is sort of a thread that i would say alice waters started um in terms of uh what we call ingredient focused um so the idea of that is Mm -hmm. Sort of that the chef uh, has a more recessive role, but the uh, sort of sacred responsibility of the chef is to make the thing taste the most of what it is. Oh, That's something that you hear a lot from chefs. Now, well, they oh. wouldn't do that with baking soda, would they? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is that it actually often takes quite a lot of manipulation, which frequently does include baking soda, has many different roles. Well, you don't want to, you don't want to have a, a dish. But do you mean like a spoonful of baking takes, soda? Take as much like baking soda as it could. <laughs> like that's not, leave, leave my restaurant, don't do that. So what does it mean to make the, the Correct, ingredient? and it's interesting because it's, 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 it is something of, a, of an artistic uh, fancy mm -hmm. in that, you know, cauliflower, getting back to the cauliflower, for example, has a strong sulfurous uh, element. Mm -hmm. And when uh, chefs are talking about making cauliflower taste the most like cauliflower, they're not emphasizing sulfur. They are in fact, okay. really only emphasizing the things that um, they particularly find pleasure in, right? So what are they opposing mm -hmm. themselves to? Who would be someone who is the least interested in making the ingredients taste like what they are? <laughs> um, I guess you could say the molecular gastronomers were yeah. really much more interested in how things looked and how things felt and in what ways they could be different um, from what you expect, but in a way uh -huh. that takes them to the other end of the spectrum of creativity. Whereas at this end, yeah. what is done, and you know, these are often techniques that are fairly routine. Um, what we're talking about maybe is like a 
braising and then roasting and then dehydrating and then rehydrating. These are all, um, you know. I got lost. Are we talking about the moleculars or the uh, No, now we're talking about the pure, like making cauliflower taste the most like itself, right? Okay. Well, I guess, I mean, uh like just obviously like wheat, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? You're not going to give people some raw wheat and ask them to do their best, right? You're going to make it. But you it want into, bread to taste like bread, I bread. guess. Yeah, bread. But this is so, and that's very different from the olive you were describing a few minutes ago, right? Where mm-hmm. it's very different from what you expect an olive to be. And actually, the making the things taste like the stuff it is reminds me of two things in art. One is. Um, you know, like Michelangelo's very late sculptures where they look like marble because you can see how, you know, they're not finely polished. So they look like the early, the Pieta, super finely polished and idealized. But these late figures are kind of rough hewn out of the rock and it's as if they're emerging from the stone. So it looks like stone. To show the materials. Yeah, the materiality of it, which became very important in other kind of modern art. So I'm thinking of like Van Gogh's brushstrokes. He sort of, sometimes Van Gogh was putting the paint directly from the paint tube onto the canvas. Mm -hmm. And it's got a texture about it. And it looks like paint, you know. I mean, and that, so that looks, that's making paint look like paint. I heard somebody almost describe this as like almost the definition of modernism is like the language is going to, the words are going to feel like words and the, the marble is going to look like rock or stone and the paint is going to look like paint. The materials aren't just sort of disappearing into the sort of representation. I mean, I don't, they may, that's a stretch, but it sounds like what you're describing with the, let the, let the stuff of the food taste like the stuff it is that it takes a very deliberate technique to be able to do that. And that's really artistic. It seems to me. Yeah. That's a very interesting parallel. I mean, it is true that, you know, you could equate um, sort of a, a molecular approach to something like, um, you know, the accomplishment of Charoscuro or perspective in right, that the right. idea was to make something two-dimensional look three-dimensional. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, of course yeah. that was enchanting mm-hmm. and remarkable and amazing. And in many ways, French, you know, the traditional French cuisine is like that famously depending on um, sauces, um, these, this endless mm-hmm. array of, of sauces, which are kind of a covering, right? Uh, and, you know, you can yeah. consider them an, an enhancement, but, you know, the whole movement of Nouvelle Cuisine was to essentially liberate ingredients from sauce. That's right. Yeah. And, and the, the, the um, perspective idea, too, is to make the surface of the painting like a lens, like our window. I mean, literally, like you look through the window at what you're looking at, so it's it's not noticed. And um, that's a so, very interesting parallel. So do, do people who like these different kinds of cuisine, are they different kinds of people? Like, is there a certain way of, of, of being in the world or being with other people that comes along with um, Alice Waters? Is that her name, Alice Waters or Alice Walker? Uh, Waters. <laughs> Alice Waters, right. Is, is Alice, Two people. Is, is there a, a particular, like, way of approaching life that comes with Alice Waters as opposed to um, the molecular cuisine people? I mean, that's very interesting. I mean, the wonderful thing, of course, about being a consumer of cuisine as well as a consumer of art is that you can like many different things. Um, Sure. You know, and and all of those um, have a place. And one of the great things about American food is that, um, you know, we have all of these different things. You know, you can eat Thai food for breakfast and you can have pizza for lunch. And there is a way in which we are... um, our culinary culture is very young 
and raw mm-hmm. compared to almost anywhere, <laughs> certainly any place like Japan or India or China or France. Um, so when we're talking about, yeah, like Van Gogh putting the paint directly on the canvas or, you know, cubism, um, you know, there is just as in, um, you know, in the visual arts, there was a canon and you had to learn to draw and you had to learn to paint before, theoretically, yeah. you could go on mm-hmm. and become an informed cubist or impressionist. Like you had to understand where you were coming from. You had to have those yeah. skills. And that still is very much the case in terms of the um, the training, the apprenticeship, the ethos of how you learn to be a chef is that you have to learn how to know those basics yeah. um, before you can move on. And, you know, whether that is factually true or not, we have no idea. All of this, all of this is yet to be learned. Um, on the front of the kind of people who like, I mean, there is certainly, of course, a huge amount of class is infused into food and especially when it is consumed publicly in restaurants for money you know a person could go to the alice waters restaurant chez panisse in berkeley with no particular prior knowledge of cuisine and be like ah yes i recognize this this is Mm -hmm. a stew this is a fig (laughs) this is a piece of bread and you might taste it and be like wow that is the best version of that i've ever had and go away satisfied in that it completely succeeds at what it sets out to do, right? And that's an also very important quality to me in assessing restaurants, which is not so much, I mean, there's the abstract, you know, objective, does it taste good to me or not? But, you know, the expectations that you have of a restaurant are are very, I think, very important in informing what your experience of that is. So I don't know if that if what's the parallel to that in art, except for, you know, the iconoclasm of modernism when suddenly people were, you know, being served images that, that they were not used to tasting. Right. Well, it's interesting to me, like you could think um, what I'm looking for in a play is I'd like it to be funny kind of like a Neil Simon play, but I would like it to deal with my contemporary existence. So, so there weren't a lot of gay or trans characters. I would like to take the contemporary world and approach it and give me the same sort of satisfactions that Neil Simon gave me. And that's, that's a thing some people want out of art. And then you could say, oh no, what I want is, um, I want it to blow my mind. I don't even want to know that I'm in a theater anymore. Suddenly, like it's it's going to make me feel like I'm in a an ancient an ancient religious ceremony. Mm. And those are are so different that it almost feels like if you went to the either one with the expectations of the other, it, it, you'd be wasting your <laughs> your time in a strange mm. way. If you went to um, you know Dionysus in '69 and you said there really weren't any terribly good jokes like that'd be crazy and if you went to a a reimagining of the well-made neil simon comedy and you're like well it didn't it didn't unlock my primal emotions that'd be kind of crazy so maybe that it's a parallel but that that makes me wonder are there other things that people could be expecting from food that they're not like could could people you're saying like if somebody says i'm gonna you know reimagine the temporality of eating an olive 
good on you. That's what you did. And if somebody says, I'm going to create a piece of bread that's the best piece of bread you ever had, good on you. And it makes me wonder, are there other goals that could be out there that no one, no one has mentioned or, or the people are just struggling to articulate in the, in the most uh, avant-garde regions of gastronomy? I feel I think you're asking me to imagine something that doesn't exist yet. Yeah, yeah. Or that <laughs> or that people or that we don't know about. Like like have you ever run into like some some wild-eyed person in a in a food stall in in Saigon and they're like here's what I'm going to do and you're like wow that's interesting. <laughs> But there's already different kinds, lots of different kinds of meals and kinds of food. I mean, it seems to me there's lots of examples of you're going to you want to go to brunch instead of dinner or you want Indian food instead of sushi or uh, there's a lot of different expectations or genres. That's a lot like de deciding which book to read or which play. To yeah. Go yeah. To. So, and there's a certain uh, there's certainly something which is sort of like primitivism, which is like I, uh -huh. I want to get away from people who think too much and just figure out what you know when I was in in Northeast Thailand we ate bees and I was like wow this is this is pretty intense we're eating bees um, and mm -hmm. and I think there's a desire for that obviously to just what are people who eat bees how do they taste like and can I taste it at least I have that I have a kind of a well what did they taste like they were great um, they were um, well so there were a couple different things there were some bee pupae and they they were super juicy and, and kind of like what you described about the olive. They had a pretty tough skin, but when you broke that skin with your teeth, um, I, I don't have the words for it, like a rich, meaty taste with certain qualities that I don't have any words for. Uh, and it was great. Just say it was kind of like chicken. It wasn't like chicken. <laughs> um, and then another thing is they had um, flying ants because the, the only electricity was just like a single light bulb that was hanging down in this house on the second floor because the first floor had water buffaloes in it. Um, so there were flying ants and then they, they had sticky rice and sticky rice was very important to them because they were ethnically kind of like Laotians and in Laos they have sticky rice instead of smooth rice. So you'd have that in a basket and you'd get a, gra a, a, a bowl of it and you'd stick it in these fried ants and the ants taste very like greasy and, and had very little, um, I think, distinguishing ant flavor. But the fact that they had little wings gave them a great texture. Although also a little mm. bit of a creepy texture because you're like, these are ant wings. I just saw those things <laughs> flying around. I would have, you know, swatted them off of my face and now I'm eating them. Yeah, I mean that, you know, there's so much about what we eat that is based on cultural expectations, of course. And mm -hmm. when, you know, I'm sure that the larva was very similar to the olive, but there are many people who would feel great revulsion about eating the larva uh, who would, of course, relish the olive. And oh, this was another, I don't mean to interrupt, there's another crazy thing, which is, because I was a teacher, in eating these bees, they had gotten honey from the forest, mm. and they brought me out a big glass of honey, and I, I drank it, I really like things that are sweet, but this was like so thick, it, mm. it kind of like, I felt that feeling of like, when you have like thumbs pressing behind your eyeballs, because you've, you're your salivary glands have been so overwhelmed with sweetness. And, and I didn't want to be rude, but I was also like, I, I'm not going to drink a pint of honey. Um, and, and so I felt I, I did a good try, but also I didn't want to consume all their honey either. So, so also the fact that like, um, these are the bees and this is the honey from those bees made it feel very, uh, very tied to the place and tied to the, 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 the life cycle of these bees.
Yeah. Anyway, right. I mean, having the sense of place is a huge part of of the aesthetics of of high culinary cuisine. Um, you know, and it's uh -huh. called terroir, and that is uh, traditionally a wine term where um, oh, right. you know, it, which is very much fetishized in wine, where it's like I can taste the sun, and I can taste the ocean, and I can taste the minerals, and I uh -huh. can taste the precise angle uh -huh. at which the sun hits the hill of this vineyard. Mm. Um, you know. Mm -hmm. All of which is it's not really provable, um, like many things in food. Yeah. But in terms of having a sense of place, that's very much what um, the the new Nordic cuisine was in, in terms of confining itself to a particular area, and having this sense that like there is some inherent virtue in eating things. I mean, regardless of the you know environmental. And, and cultural concerns of importing and flying and, and sure. highly processed foods, mm -hmm. but that there is something inherently virtuous to the point of being delicious from eating a clam that is from the waters that are mm -hmm. 30 yards off the, the room that you're in. Uh-huh. Right. Uh -huh. And that may be idea content that's not literally in the sense experience, exactly. but it's kind of background that informs your experience and it can change it. It really can. Even whether it's true or not, it can actually and I know with some like sometimes shrimps that are not quite chopped up enough or whatever, it looks too much like an animal, it kind of creeps me out and I have a harder time enjoying enjoying eating it. I was wanted to say one thing quickly as a callback to I wasn't thinking of this when I said it, but I was just remembering the example of Van Gogh putting the tube of paint right straight onto the canvas. I think he was actually also eating the paint. So there's a connection with <laughs> oh, culinary stuff, which I was forgetting. Yeah, I think Why so. Why was he eating the I paint, Taylor? He was, he was having problems and issues, and I don't know what. Maybe he was getting a rush from, I don't know. Does it make you high? Does does eating paint give you a, I mean, lead a paint. high, like sniffing glue? Ugh. Yeah. It may have been responsible for some of his troubles. <laughs> well, it seems like anyway, a, I, who knows? I just came cycle, into my yeah. mind. I must have been free associating that when I was thinking that. Because anyway, but but here's the other suggestion I want to make. It seems to me that in some ways, the art form that that uh, food and cuisine cooking may be closest to is music, because it can be like Eric was saying before just sort of performance-based and incidental or ephemeral and improvisatory. So you don't have like a stable work, but you've got more like an experience on an occasion. Mm. And it's also not representational, unlike plays or novels or even paintings. It's not really of anything necessarily, right? I mean, it's itself, and it's very sensuous. And finally, I think you can know virtually nothing about music and enjoy music, and I think you don't have to know very much about the food you're eating for it to be delicious and for you to really enjoy the meal. Though at the same time, maybe the more you know about it, the richer your experience is. I know that's true of music. Oh, I'm going to put forward another mm -hmm. uh, uh, intellectual uh, uh, thing, and we're going to have Julia pick. I think it's more like architecture. Uh -huh. Because like, I was thinking about the fact that, like, so... Why was I so ashamed of eating that ice cream? Well, it's because a dog could just as well eat the ice cream. <laughs> and a dog couldn't listen to a music. Uh -huh. A dog couldn't, you know, uh -huh. listen to a poem, but a dog could eat the ice cream. So I'm, in a sense, degrading myself to the status of a dog. Uh -huh. But then I thought, well, a dog can take shelter in Chartres Cathedral from a rainy night. Um, so being in this sort of relationship to our animal selves isn't a knock on... Um, the ice cream because we're in the same relationship to our animal selves when we use architecture to shelter our bodies. Um, so, so pick 
More like music, <laughs> more like art, architecture. Choose carefully. Um, yeah. Well, the music part of it, Taylor, I think that is really interesting and in that, you know, it just, it, you just sort of take it in. It's true that it doesn't yeah. necessarily involve um, uh, a body of work that you can look at, that, that you can read in certain ways. Um, mm. And very much like food, it does seem as if the human brain is somewhat programmed to like music or appreciate yeah. music or yeah. make music like mm -hmm. you know there is a yeah. reason that ice cream tastes so good to you eric it's because it is very high in sugar and it is very high in calories right and of course you know when we were all roaming in the serengeti those things were very important ice cream was not available uh, but you know there's the no. you know the the simple um caloric density is a big factor um and i don't know that there is a parallel to that in music <laughs> well, we were probably dancing, and eventually we were banging on drums and playing flutes and singing and stuff. I think that's pretty hardwired, too. I don't know in, when in human evolution it emerged, but I think it's pretty innate, some kind of musical impulse, rhythm, and And there might tone. be, you know, if we like to play these Darwinian games, it could be that music helps coordinate us, or maybe maybe music is a way of social yeah i don't know displaying your fitness and when you're seeking a mate but architecture is good because it is also you know there is the way in which food and shelter are you know primarily yeah. the um you know in the hierarchy of needs and again you can right. you know these things can be accomplished in a variety of ways but then there's a you know the social aspect of food which is different yeah um you know because of course you can sit in your living room and listen to a cantata and, and and enjoy it but that's a very recent that's a very recent technological development i think i think it used to be that you'd sit around in a room and play music with people or go to a concert and listen to people playing that you've got recording technology that allows you to do it uh in isolation yeah. no that's true that's a good point and i do think that that's a that's a loss um eating together and uber, yeah, uber right. together is Uber Eats can can get you, yeah. you know. Oh yeah, no, it, high, the equivalent of the highly fancy food. In you a can box. eat alone yeah. too, actually. You know, I'm remembering another episode we did a long time ago where this same topic came up about the sociality of food and eating and so on. You can eat alone, but that's also a very recent thing. It's usually a very social thing. I think I think eating and music are similar in that way. They bring people together, and it's yeah. communicative somehow. I mean, it's, you're sharing something, right? Uh, and, and it's it's strange. It's strange. Um, so our society is is embarked on this unprecedented and and sort of bad experiment on social isolation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah. people grieve that, and people feel bad about that. And I think sometimes what they do is they're like, "Oh, I'm angry at Chipotle because um, that food is bad and it's so mechanized." But I don't think they're really mad so much about what the food is. I think they're bad, mad about what it shows about how we relate to each other. In other words, even if Chipotle objectively made their food much better, I think people would still sort of feel sad about that sociality of just mm -hmm. coming on in your car, rushing out, grabbing the food, shoving it down your head. Um, like it feels sad because we're missing something and it might not have to do with the food. I don't know. Yeah. So the burrito is an arbitrary choice in that situation? Or is there something particularly about Chipotle that you feel contributes to social isolation? No, uh, no, just it's, it happens to be a, a pretty good um, fast mm. food restaurant that I've good heard enough. people be, mm -hmm. be yeah. snobby about. 
I've heard people be snobby about Chipotle and it it's made me, good. and I was thinking like, I just sort of like, I'm afraid of snobbery. Like I feel like snobbery tends to like hide interesting facts about life from us. So I'm like, what is it really that people don't like about Chipotle? Um, mm. it's, it seems like a perfectly good burrito. I like it. Um, but I'm, then I'm trying to wonder, like, what is it that people don't like about it? If, if um, it's the fast yeah, food it's, idea. It's, good it's like fast foods encroaching into better and better food, so you can't just despise it because it's actually quite good. Isn't this a new thing? I know, again, really nothing about food, but what I'm noticing in New York is all these kind of it's almost an oxymoron, high-end fast food, but it's actually mm -hmm. quite good. There's a place called Especially, Dos Toros. Yeah, do you live which is near good. Columbia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I've noticed you have the creep of like now you have a yes. Five Guys, which is kind of like a better McDonald's yeah. because the fries yeah. are hand cut and the it's beef marginally is better. better quality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's marginally better, but it has a, yeah. a higher status, a class creep. But indeed, you know, those were restaurants, those, uh, you know, when when we were all growing up um, in that neighborhood. Yeah. And the fact that now there is so much solitary eating. Yeah. Um, there's a market for better versions of that that get kind of a pretty good meal yeah. in a bag take it out yeah. quick yeah and, and I, it, I feel it's like it's actually is, quite good it's yeah. so conspicuous in New York yeah. right because yeah. uh, you know you it there is uh, even before the pandemic there was never a time when you couldn't you, you know making the choice between yeah. planning a meal shopping for a meal doing the prep for a meal cooking the meal and cleaning up for the meal that's all optional, right? You know, in many, in a lot of, you know, uh, of the first world societies at this point. And, you know, to make that choice rather than to make the choice to go have a Five Guys burger right. becomes increasingly difficult. You yeah. know, it seems perverse in some right. ways. Like, yeah. why would you do that? Why would you spend so much time on that? And I think that that's part of what people are mad or that's what makes me mad about fast food. It's like, I'm fighting. I would like, I know that the pleasure yeah. and the artistry and the community when I make dinner is different, but yep. man, the temptation to take that shortcut is just greater it's and greater. So easy, and especially when it can be a pretty good meal. It's not just a exactly. McDonald's or something. It's actually, yeah, higher quality. Party planning is an art. <laughs> yeah, how far are you willing to go with this? <laughs> Let's, where do we yeah. draw the line? I ask you. Because I think yes. I think I think if if we can reflectively look at our desire to consume calories and do it in a way that foregrounds certain things that are important to us, we can look at our biological desire to be together in groups and we can do it in different ways and i think there's sort of a similar like there's there's the native cultural traditions there's whatever the christmas feast or the birthday party and mm -hmm. then you can be more uh are we going to have a party where we listen to music or are we going to have a party where we all play music together um I, I don't know if if um i mean i really don't know a single high-end party planner that's not a person i've ever met but but you'd imagine they could be having those kind of conversations like ah oh, <laughs> that guy's parties are so hack uh, i want to i want to i want to create a party that's different 
Well, as a Hollywood writer, Eric, I'm, I'm sure that you could find such a person. I could find like, such a person. I mean, think about the people easily. who started Burning Man are sort mm -hmm. of like something right. like um, yeah. high-end chefs of the party planning um, <laughs> I mean, the whole phrase party planning, right, is part of the problem. And this is why we don't have parties. <laughs> and this is why we don't eat together, because the whole idea that it takes a lot of planning. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. Interesting. Party throwers, I should have said. New and problematic. You know, nobody feels like they have time to plan a party and, and make all of the decisions that are necessary for that. Um, I'm just feeling a little allergic to the party planning because I heard someone on the radio yesterday going on and on about whether people should be allowed to keep their shoes on at your party. And people oh. have very strong feelings about that. Oh, right. Oh, here's the thing. And maybe party planning is the wrong word. Because I was thinking, I wish I could have office hours like professors do. Mm. And it would just be like all my friends would know on Wednesday from 6 to 10, I'm at my local bar. And right. if you want to talk to Eric, that's what you do. And it's not all this like, hey, can we get together? Yeah, we should. And I'm texting mm -hmm. with someone and I don't see them for three years because we spend so much time texting and figuring out when we'll be available. I wish we were physically available <laughs> and you didn't need to use your phone yeah. and and people could just come. So that's well, that that's a social social engineering. That's another heart, heinous phrase that people use. <laughs> I mean, that does bring it back to restaurants because, of course, hospitality is I think what you're talking about, right? Yeah, the ability yeah. and the opportunity to be welcoming. And this is in fact a very important to most of the chefs that I know, and it's not something that everyone can stand to do. Uh -huh. um, being a chef is, I feel like it's, it's a bit yes. like being um, an actor in the Phantom of the Opera. Like you have to do <laughs> the same yeah. thing, the same way every uh, night. Like yeah. if you, that's, that's the success. Like that's the, right. the best that you can hope for. Interesting. And that the creative limitations of that, I think, are filled in by ah. the aspect of hospitality that people who succeed in that field really have. Like they really want to make people happy. They don't just want to make themselves happy or please themselves mm. with their art or be like a crazy Van Gogh all by themselves. Like right. the um, the feeding yeah, somehow delivering the art and recreating it every night, you know, that requires a very particular way of thinking. So maybe mm. the restaurant itself is part of the artwork, if we can use the word work at all. I mean, maybe that's part of the work. It's an enduring thing. You go back to it again and again. Maybe, you know, the menu changes, but it, maybe it's more like a, a famous theater or a venue that's maintained in a certain way so you have some kind of continuity of experience going there and it feels familiar and you're welcome and you have a similar experience um opera house of some kind or i'm thinking what eric was talking about also sounds to me like what maybe a producer does or somebody who's a like um there's a word that's on the tip of my tongue i can't quite the think restaurateur impresario <laughs> impresario exactly right yeah somebody who's a host who can create a kind of scene uh, that has a quality and ambiance that's recognizable and has character. Right. And that was the quality. Um, that was the definition of restaurants for a long time. That was the, the person in that world is called the restaurateur. And right, 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 that, right, right. of course, would have been the person who you knew at a restaurant. It wouldn't have been the chef. So the so the, maybe it the, is like a the bringing the chef out of the kitchen is a very recent development and the expectation that the chef ah. creator should also be that the kind of the the director should also yes. be the producer uh -huh. 
uh, is kind of a new idea. Many chefs buckle under the weight of it. It is almost impossible. Um, so now I'm thinking to do both well. Now I'm thinking it really is like some kind of performance art, not performance art in the contemporary sense, but a performance in the sense that w what makes the whole experience is the venue, the location. You got Eric's architecture in there, and then you've got this experience. And the chef who used to be on the back, maybe like the composer of the music, who doesn't always come out to take a bow, but might at the end, or you've got the writer of the play or something like that. But you also have a timed thing. The reason I think there's a limitation on the analogy with architecture is because with a piece of music or a play or a performance, it does last a certain time. And the temporality is very important about it, right? You have the beginning of the meal, and there's a kind of shape to it, to the conclusion and mm. so on. Um, hmm. So, ah, all kinds of analogies. But you can have that in a, in a, in a building, like the, you know, the, the entrance and sure. then the expansion and then the contraction as you make your way through a building. I guess there's some expectation. Can be the way that you can do that in a meal. Maybe. Oh, yeah. And the meal is very much like that is what I meant to be saying. Oh, I hope the, the camera works. That was a good hand motion demonstrating that. <laughs> <laughs> and the architecture. Maybe the architecture has some expectation that you're coming and you're going. Um, I feel like, Eric, I feel like our 11th grade, you know, architecture teacher would be very proud that I that I was able to sum it that up. Was good. That was, no, that was good. good. Really good. Like the nave, the transept. Yes. That was remember, all yeah, that's right. It's yeah, I thought it there, was something, you through. there was yeah. something interesting happening with temporality in your olive story, that it seems that there's a temporality of a mouthful or a bite that is being, it's doing things with our sense of sort of like, you know, uh, you know, he who kisses the fleeting joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. That that we're sort of thinking about how much is pleasure a thing that we want to hold on to? How much is it something that inherently, by the time you know it's there, it's gone? Like, like I feel like that olive chef is is playing with that uh, consciously or not. I don't, mm. I don't know this person. No, absolutely. I mean, that's what these tasting menus, these progressive menus, want to do. They they want to um, they want to give you a, a through line. Um, they want you to follow this path, which isn't just you know. Sometimes it's from memory to you know. Sometimes it's from childhood to adulthood. Sometimes oh, interesting. It's from from the ocean to the mountains. I mean, these are very ambitious people who... So it's narrative, too. Yes, there's definitely an attempt to infuse narrative. There's a certain amount of resistance to that. And also, there's a certain amount of fatigue that comes with that. I mean, if you have, you know, you have this new idea, you have this olive, and that's great. And then let's say the next course is different because it's going to be crispy and it tastes like Parmesan cheese, but instead of being cheese, it's a cracker and you have it with some um foam of jamon which is like the spanish um wonderful ham but in a different texture right and so you've had those two things and then if you have 17 more things like that you know the 20th bite is not going to taste as good as the first bite mm -hmm. right and right that's you know, I don't. Is is there an equivalent of oh, that in art? Is in that comedy. you know that kind of palate fatigue? A comedy. There's <laughs> laughing fatigue. I think. I mean, Eric knows a lot more about this than I do. But my crude experience as an audience member is that if a movie is too funny all the way through, by the end I'm tired of laughing and it's exhausting. And so a good comedy sometimes has a kind of lull where you can, you know, you laugh for 20 mm. minutes or 30. In fact, maybe I heard you say this, Eric. I don't know if you said it or before or not, but that you have to catch your breath and then you get get a laugh at the end again. Well, there, there's a famous essay, I think it is by De Quincey. There's an essay, I think it's by De Quincey, uh -huh. called On the Knocking at the Gate of Macbeth. Uh -huh. 
And I guess after one of the act breaks in Macbeth, when there's been like tragedy and murder, a, a, a guy who's the gate watchman comes out and does like a comedic monologue. Yes, right. And I think yes. that's that's sort of like similar to like, you know, give give your emotions a, a break or that breaks or the seriousness of it just won't that one, it won't be case. it won't be sad because i'm i'm all cry i'm all cried out i don't, I don't that's almost anymore. the opposite that's the inverse of the comedy thing where you can laugh a little and get sort of the stress out but with the comedy it seems like you need to stop laughing before you get to the end the final laugh oh yeah. i i and i definitely i've noticed people really like particularly critics um dramedies Mm -hmm. where it's a drama and occasionally it's funny right and the and the fact is i think people are annoyed by something that's a pure comedy because they sort of feel like make me laugh laugh boy you know <laughs> that, that because they know the next thing that is going to be coming out of my mouth is something intended to make them laugh uh -huh. they get a little resistant uh -huh. but if it's a sad story then a very like not great joke will get a gigantic laugh because you're looking for the release Yep, interesting. Um, I wonder yeah. if you couldn't. I'm I'm thinking about this party planning idea. If you couldn't, if okay, you couldn't, no, but no, but we have what? to. I have to go back to Macbeth because okay. that is what I'm. It makes me think of you know. So Macbeth opens. They get there's there's the ghost of Banquo, and it's all yes. like suddenly yes. you're in there, and then you know you have this comic monologue, and I feel like that would be the best kind of meal, mm -hmm. and we, the artists, the chefs, they can't do that, right? They are required. It's sort of like being an impressionist, they imagine, which is like, you are doing that. You are doing your pointillism and that's it mm. um, because that's what the people want because you cannot have a meal where you have that or there is no such thing as a meal where you have, you know, that that those creative two bites and then a piece of fried chicken, right? Which would be the the equivalent of the of the comic monologue. Um, you just invented the mall food court, Julia. <laughs> but I don't understand. That's you, true. I don't understand. Were you saying you sit at some on. tables in the middle Wait. and you can get whatever you want? Yeah, go on, Terrell. Were you saying that you can't do that in a meal? I thought um, I didn't understand. I thought you could. You just don't. That's oh, just really? not. That's just not the artistic convention. Isn't there like of cleansing of chef? Isn't there cleansing of the palate kind of thing where you kind of? But it's not take in a, break? a different genre. Uh -huh. It's always in in the genre. Oh, I like see. you don't take a break by getting a piece of fried chicken. I or like, see. Piece of sushi you know, in the middle of a half a bagel. Yeah, you are you were getting again the you know pomegranate hibiscus sorbet that is artistically contiguous oh. to the things that have gone before but it does it, it give might... you a different physical response which is going to be a kind of a, a relief to your just physical system so if you go from laughing to not laughing or from not laughing to laughing there's um yeah i see what you mean about the difference i think of you're genre. right it's supposed to you're yeah. right it's supposed to do that yeah, it, it is part of the progression of a meal um and yet the way that it's done yeah, is so artistically not different from what has gone before or what comes after that it doesn't actually function as a palate cleanser interesting like, what would really be good would be to like go outside and have like a shot of vodka there like, is an yeah. intermission but that's not part of the work yeah <laughs> i think, right, I think right. this is evolving into party planning because it, it could be that um you show up at the restaurant and you have some appetizers and then the chef leads you all on a walk mm. and you go up to a hill and there's your main course there and you watch the sun go down and then you <laughs> climb back down the hill and you, you know, you have coffee and cigars or, or something like that. Retire to the library. Oh, yeah. where do you stand on or cigars? <laughs> yes or no? 
Um, I mean, certainly, I think from a culinary perspective, it's not a good idea, no. <laughs> oh, it's not, because you won't be able to taste. Because sometimes yeah. it's like you eat a lot, and then you go in the back, and you have brandy and cigars, and then maybe there's like well, coffee at some point. I don't remember if the coffee comes I, after or before. I would have to I would have to point out that that is a British uh, tradition, and unfortunately, yep. their no you know, history of connoisseurship is not, is not <laughs> magnificent. See. British food the now less, is very good. But, the less said, you know. the better, yep. <laughs> could massage be an art here i got a question for you eric what? it could be good yeah. party play. i got a question for you what is an art such that it matters whether something is an art or not i mean oh. what what have you got in mind when you're asking is something an art because i used to worry about this kind of thing long ago and gradually i've come to think it's a very arbitrary category here, here's here's what i'll say i think there's certain there's certain ethical goals that can be achieved by art in terms of seeing who we are even if we're uncomfortable about that mm. and i think there's certain um mm. i don't want to say religious but almost like mystical goals that can be achieved by art where it's almost like you're you're having a communion with aspects of your life that you've previously been a little numb to right. um and and that's what i that's what i like <laughs> okay. about art you know <laughs> and so okay. then when i'm sort of like can professional wrestling do it you know can right i was going to ask you what definitely isn't an art i mean um i don't know if there's anything that definitely isn't an art it, i think it kind of depends on context and yeah. and and cultural um and historical background personally. seems like if the concept is going to do some work it has to distinguish uh itself like, from like i guess i think an ibuprofen is not an art Okay. Well, like, I think if I've That's got a the headache... people at Advil take... are going to be very disappointed that you No, I don't that, think but... they will. I, I think their marketing strategy is doing just fine. Um, and it's not like, have you ever experienced an Advil? Like, it's not that. It's like, have you ha do you have a headache? Do you want to stop having a headache? We can do that for you. And I think... I think... Um, like, like right, sometimes Advil food is a negative experience. It is it, it, it takes pain. away pain. And, right. and yeah. part yeah, of my feeling true. about sometimes, like when I've consumed food in a way that feels like on the opposite, and maybe everything is a spectrum, but on the opposite side of the art spectrum, it's sort of like I'm tired and I'm angry, and I'm gonna have a frappuccino. So I'm not. I'm not even. And this is the 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 thing that I thought was the worst. The worst thing I ever did was that once I was. I was thinking I would really like to have a cup of coffee right now. And I was having a cup of coffee right then. I was uh -huh. drinking coffee and I was thinking <laughs> I would like to have a cup of coffee. And I was like, you're really not paying attention to this coffee. You are currently maximally drinking a cup of coffee. You, I was literally pouring coffee liquid into my mouth. Um, so, but you so, were not. But you were not present. For no, I wasn't present. I wasn't present. So, so I feel that art can bring us to a certain presence to our lives and the people we share our lives with, and I think food can too. Um, but uh, you know, you, 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 it's you know, if you want to be perverse and and go to a chef's great restaurant and spend the whole time on your phone, it can also not. <laughs> you know, you can you can block yeah. it. You know, mm -hmm. you can you can if it's trying to break open the icy uh, lake of your soul, you can you can add more ice. <laughs> you, know, you can deflect the axe. Hmm. Well, what else should we talk say, about? I think, as we, um, oh, yes. I think Alka-Seltzer. Alka-Seltzer is an art, though. You think oh, Alka-Seltzer yes. is an art? I would make an exception for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because of the theatricality of putting those two um, things in the in the It's a multi-sensory. It's yes. part of every good meal. <laughs> Comes right at the end. <laughs>
a few hours after. It's like the, um, it's like the exit it's the door. It's the button. It's the coda. I yeah, would exactly. argue, yes, I would argue yeah. Alka-Seltzer can be an art, but Prilosec isn't. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I've got so many more uh, questions about food and art. But okay, we, yeah, we'll have to have gone the for an hour. We have to have the, part two okay. maybe sometime. Okay. Um, Thanks so much for sure. joining us, Julia. You, this Julia. was great. This was fun this, and informative. Thank you so much. I'm so sad that we did not get to decide what is the best cupcake or indeed the best ice cream, because that is really another ah, big question. We need more concrete examples. Well, well here's here's here. OK, here's a concrete question. When I'm looking to an ice cream critic, what should I be looking for in a good ice cream critic? <laughs> not a good ice cream, but a good ice cream critic. Yeah. Yeah. Because he wants to do the secondary reading. Yeah. Yeah, I want to figure out if if I'm sitting down and I'm reading something that says you've got to try this ice cream, this vanilla ice cream, and, and I like the fact that it was a vanilla ice cream because obviously, hey, they're putting lychees in it. I got to check that out. But if it's just some kind of ice cream that I've tasted before, and someone has said you have to check out this particular vanilla ice cream, how can I figure out if they're tricking me or if they're actually on the ball? Well, this is the thing, you know, are they tricking you or are they, you know, are they doing this to the best of their ability with their own prejudices and expectations and aspirations about what ice cream should be? So you know, what should I look for? Have, people have very different. Because on the Internet, the Internet in is full of, of bozos. The Internet has but so many bozos. But there is no such thing as, as the, but there's as no bozos? such thing as the best ice cream. Uh -huh. That's the problem. Ah. And we keep trying to do this, you know, in, in, in my job and in our role as as food people as food critics we're often called upon to say which is the best of these frozen pizzas ah. and for example in the frozen pizza tasting none of them were good but one <laughs> okay. of them was the best was the least bad <laughs> okay. but that's not saying much i see you know a whole thing we didn't even talk about very much but now i wish we had is this whole question about to what extent are these judgments subjective or objective? Oh, subjective Be and objective. Well, because Julia, for this wanted, reason. Julia wanted to talk about that, and I deflected ah, it. So see, it's see, my fault. See, for this for this reason, which is, I think, because it's so biological, there's a huge amount of just consensus and agreement because some stuff just tastes good more or less to everybody at some basic level. It's like people don't go around eating gravel and some people like gravel and some people don't. I mean, people like sugar and like <laughs> mm -hmm. you said, calories and no. so on and so on. But it's also kind of notoriously true that people have different tastes when it comes to taste and tasting. And some people really do report. I've, I've that they eaten like some, some pretty good dirt There's, in my oh, life. Have you? Yeah, it's really? called pika if you do it too much, but I've had small amounts of dirt, which I've liked. Okay, so I'm very curious about what an expert like you has to say about how much disagreement is there that seems like a level of disagreement, You there's no longer much to say about it except you like it and I don't in food, or is there is there some kind of basic sort of physiologically determined consensus about what's good and bad. And then when people disagree, they're more like expressing opinions that are to do with associations and stuff. But the, you know, you know what I mean? I mean, is the, maybe. No, people's... I do know what you mean. And, and I think about this all the uh -huh. time when we're doing yeah. tastings, because even something as simple as vanilla ice cream actually has an enormous number of variants. Uh -huh. you know, there's, uh -huh. I mean, just not just the qualities like um, the mouthfeel or the sweetness, but also things like how much air is oh, in it, oh, you know? And that's not something that is quantified on the label, but that right. makes a huge difference in whether you like that ice cream or not, and I whether see. you like it, uh -huh. and whether it is the best. I see. Is yes, I see what you mean. Really, in most cases, it, impossible to determine. Well, it could be is like music true, in that way. Is it way. true that yeah. certain creams have more of a note of, of cow sweat? Certain creams? Yeah, that certain dairy 
you feel mm-hmm. more like the smell of a sweaty cow. <laughs> wow. Um, I mean, I would imagine that raw cream has more of that. <laughs> or, that's, that's what I notice or, in good dairy is that I feel more of that sweaty cow vibe. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. dairy from like Baskin Robbins, I don't. What you're tasting is grass, probably. Maybe. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Not. And, and I mean, I'm sure that is, I'm sure that those, uh, um, you know, esters are present in the cow sweat. Because I think, uh, I think an, yes. an, a milk gland is a modified sweat gland biologically. Well, yeah. I mean, if you start thinking too much about dairy, you really would never <laughs> eat ice cream. Or, maybe <laughs> they, or you'd, you'd eat more cow sweat. Or maybe okay. they um, added artificial sweat after. This has been a, maybe, I hope, God, I hope not. Okay, this has been a wonderful, a wonderful conversation, Julia. This really uh, has been. I'm, yeah. I'm going to let you go. I mean, trying uh, to figure out which is the best ice cream would be like trying to figure out which is the best Gothic cathedral. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like, there's that's all over the place in art. Like, which is the best string quartet? I mean, it's Divine is a pretty question. lousy right. Gothic but there cathedral. Is a, but there is a conviction. Yeah, everybody knows. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's better and worse. But I think what you mean is there's better and worse. Why do you think people are so invested in finding the best vanilla ice cream or the best cupcake or the best steak au poivre when they are not invested in finding the best, you know, movie or the best um, romance or the best... Everybody likes to be a connoisseur to show off their sophistication and their refinement, right? right? right. So it's, there's a right. lot it's of a little, string in it. A little but, Thorsten Veblen, but, yeah. It is. It, 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 it is sort of like, and, and maybe like, like this is a little brag for the listeners. Julie and I both got into a competitive high school, and I think being in a competitive academic environment kind of makes you judge things as better or worse, where it kind of doesn't make sense. Like, 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 mm-hmm. which is a better animal, a swan or a squirrel? Well, I don't know. <laughs> See, did you have a lot of conversations like that at Hunter no, High School? We did not. No, I, but I no. We it's almost like we we didn't have enough conversations like that. I think a lot of people felt like it's it's better to be better, and if you if you think it's not better to be better, maybe it's because you're not better. You're you're not one of the better ones. So yeah. these things are compatible. You can think there's better and worse, but the closer you go up to better, it doesn't get narrowed down to a unique one. It's like it it, it fans out. So that like string quartets, yeah, there's Mozart, there's Haydn, there's Shostakovich. Now, are the Haydn string quartets better or worse than the Shostakovich string quartets? Somebody might have an opinion about that. But if you ask me, it's like it's all at the highest level. I don't, very know, who different. The, I don't know who the critic was who wrote this review. Um, but I appreciated that they said there's such a thing as really good vanilla ice cream. Because there's an awful lot of how would you like ice cream that has a Snickers bar in it? And it's like, well, I don't know, man. I was trying to have some ice cream. Why are you confusing me by now putting a Snickers bar in it? And now I have to figure out if I like Snickers bars or if I, you know, <laughs> like you can't just, I mean, you can, but you shouldn't just keep adding things. You're distracting no, yourself sure. from the first. Well, thing. exactly. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. This was great. Thank, Thank you. you so much. This was Thank you delicious. so much, Julia. This was a really good one. This is a really good one. <laughs> Thank so you, Eric. We're going to tell everyone to I listen feel, to it. I feel full and, we'll and let, satisfied. We'll let you know. And we'll let you know when it comes out. Good to see you. It was really you. fun. Good um, to see if, you, if, too. If life, if, if life ever takes you to uh, Los Angeles, give me oh, a ring. Oh, I will do we that. Could, we, could, we could go out to eat or... or we could go out for ice cream. You could eat here. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Okay. Have a nice weekend and, and uh, have a happy Thank New Year. Thank you. You too. Thanks again. Bye. Bye-bye.
This podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen. It's edited by me, Taylor Carmen, produced by Amanda Eberhardt, and the cover art is the work of Tony Millionaire. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok as Terrifying Questions.